and welcome to part two of 20 Years On, where for the next few weeks we look back at Hong Kong's highs and lows since July the 1st, 1997. I'm Anna Fenton. It was 2003, and alarm turned to panic on the morning of March the 31st, when residents of Block E in Amoy Gardens awoke to find police and medics in moon suits, telling them they were quarantined at home by emergency order. 200 of their neighbours had already contracted the deadly new mysterious disease, SARS, in one weekend. And despite frantic disinfecting, the virus continued to spread throughout the block. Dodgy drain construction was later found to have enabled the bug to jump from floor to floor. But no one knew this at the time. SARS started when a doctor came from China and infected seven other guests during a one-night stay in Kowloon's Metropark Hotel. In total, nearly 8,100 people would catch SARS globally, with 774 deaths. I caught up with Peter Mann, retired civil servant and author of The Sheriff of Wanshai. He describes life during SARS. It was like living in Plague City. I remember um, in January, somebody telling me, came down from, from uh, Guangdong and said, there's, there's something very nasty up there. And, of course, through February and March, it developed into um, something really very, very horrible. And we uh, felt as if we were in Plague City. I remember um, at that stage calling up my brother in England and saying, um, well, uh, yeah, things are a bit bad here, but, I mean, anyway, I'll be looking forward to coming and visit, visiting you in the summer. And there was a silence on the other end of the line, and he said... Um, I don't think so, Peter. Then, of course, we realised that we were pariahs, and I remember everybody had to wear masks. Wherever you went, you had to wear a mask, and even that mecca of fun, the Rugby Sevens, people were wearing masks during the Rugby Sevens. Everybody sat in the the stadium with masks on. A lot of people had masks on, and I had my 50th birthday party in the FCC at the end of April, and the management called me up and said, Of course, everybody's got to wear a mask at your party. And I thought, no, this is not what I consider my party to be like. And I said, sorry, um, if you insist on that, we're going to have to cancel the party. So they said, oh, all right. But it was almost over by the end of April. So they said, "Okay." so we didn't wear the masks. But it was a pretty frightening time. I think I'm right in saying that it had been going on the mainland for a while, but we hadn't really heard about it. Yes, well, the... Chinese are a bit slow in reporting uh, the uh, case to the World Health Organization. It took them four months, I think, to report it. And meanwhile, things were, were, were getting worse in Hong Kong. That doctor checked into a hotel, Metropark Hotel, and then he, um, he was very sick. And then about six of the people that, that, that were in the hotel with him went to Canada, Vietnam... Uh, one or two other places and it spread all the way around the world very quickly Um, Amoy Gardens uh, I think where most of the fatalities were This was a block of flats in in Kowloon A block of flats in Kowloon which had a very dodgy um, drainage system and that was where I think they had over 200 fatalities so it was very scary and very unpleasant time to be in Hong Kong. So remind us what else happened that summer, because having had a few years of not much happening after the handover, this was suddenly action stations. Well, um, a few months later, um, the Hong Kong government tried to introduce Article 23, which was the national security laws. 
and of course... Um, was that very bad timing? Well, it was probably not the best form of timing, and um, the lawyers uh, and the Democrats and Martin Lee and everything said, you know, talk, start talking about a police state, and um, there was a huge reaction to this, and it ended up, as you will remember, on the 1st of July, with a march of nearly half a million people. And that was the first of the big July 1st marches. That was the, the, the biggest one of all. And uh, in the end, the three people had to go. Um, Regina Ip had to stand down as Secretary for Security. Um, shortly afterwards, um, Anthony Learn stepped down as uh, Financial Secretary because, um, if you recall, he bought a Lexus car shortly after raising the taxes. Ah, Lexus Learn. Lexus Learn. And... Um, uh, the chief executive, Tung Chi didn't have to leave immediately, but he was um, certainly damaged, and uh, uh, towards the end of the year, he had to step down. Uh, so that, was, uh, that became a, a huge political issue in the middle of the year. So other things were going on, I think. Then we had Harbour Fest. Well, the government decided that now SARS was over and Hong Kong its reputation had taken such a big hit... Uh, that they needed something to really, you know, bounce back Hong Kong and get people to, to love Hong Kong again. So they came up with this idea of Harbour Fest. And actually, it was a very good idea. And um, it, 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 I'm not sure if you went to any of the concerts, but it was really, it was the best thing since Woodstock. You know, we had the Rolling Stones and Prince, Prince and Gypsy Kings and um, Neil Young. And it was fantastic. It was wonderful. But... Um, it became very controversial because, um, first of all... The organisers got a pasting, didn't they? The organisers got a pasting. Um, the fact that Hong Kong had already bounced back, so in a way it had lost its raison d'etre, um, they were looking around for a scapegoat because they felt that the music had been too guilo, even though the local, local artists did take part. Um, and um, they also started talking about uh, not recovering the cost, but of course that had never been part of the deal and um, the senior officials of course Mike Rouse was the one that had to uh, carry the can for this and the senior officials all were nowhere to be found um, at this stage and poor old Mike had to carry the can but um, and they wanted him to um, to uh, uh, they, they find him one month's salary and he decided he was going to um, fight this and indeed he did fight it at great personal cost uh, great personal expense and ended up by winning uh, his case against the Hong Kong government What, so they actually fined him a month's salary for not making a success of organising a bunch of concerts they, they, they certainly did and um, of course it was financial secretary Henry Tang that was the chairman of the committee and he retrospectively uh, changed the minutes uh, to say that um, He'd said that Mike had done a good job and under the circumstances performed very well. And when it became a public controversy, he went back and changed the minutes and deleted all that stuff. So if this was an example of ministerial responsibility, it wasn't a very good one. Um, anyway, I mean, I think everybody enjoyed the concert. I certainly did. I, I remember having a wonderful time watching the Rolling Stones and uh, the, the concerts all played to capacity crowds. And I think, in a way, it showed that Hong Kong had bounced back. Definitely, definitely. Well, looking back on that time now, what, what memories come up for you? 
Well, what a roller coaster year. Um, you know, we survived SARS. Uh, we uh, got out of our Plague City mentality. Um, there was a huge political shakeup in the middle of the year um, and ended up with uh, the Rolling Stones playing Tamar. So, what a year. How closely does Peter Mann's account match Mike Rouse's memory of the concerts that would end up costing him more than three million Hong Kong dollars in legal fees, despite winning costs to clear his name? The whole economic relaunch idea, of which Harbour Fest was actually a minority part, uh, was, I think, entirely correct. Um, the economies died, uh, hotels were empty, restaurants were empty, nobody was getting out and about and spending any money second quarter GDP was basically disappeared and what the government said was okay we'll set aside a billion dollars get out there throw it at the economy spend it on whatever this is to deal with the aftermath of the dreaded this is SARS to bring economy back from SARS so most of the ideas came from within the government so they got money got spent on predictable things like I think of the billion dollars, we threw 400 million at uh, reviving tourism. Mm. Uh, and there were all sorts of things like a bicycle ride from Sha Tin to Tai Po. And there was dancing under the stars in Wan Chai. And there was something on the beaches of Chun Moon. Uh, all sorts of ideas. But Anthony Leung was the financial secretary. And he wanted ideas from the private sector. He said, this, this must be something that the whole community mm. is getting involved in and doing. So the best idea that came from the private sector came from the American Chamber of Commerce. And they said, look, how about... A this was Jim Thompson. It was Jim Thompson and his entertainment subcommittee, basically the guy from Disney and uh, uh, another guy. Um, and they said, look, let's have a series of concerts. Let's get some big names in there. And we need a subsidy. Uh, they actually costed it at 116 million Hong Kong dollars and revenue was almost nothing, 16 million, so they needed a subsidy of 100 million. But they weren't focused on it being profitable? No, it was never, that was never a suggestion. It was always going to be something that was heavily subsidised so that Hong Kong people would come out of their flats, get it on a bus, go to a bar, go to a restaurant, have a drink, have a meal, see a show, etc. Mm. Just start normal life again. Because everybody had been bunkered up for months. You remember, that was the summer also. We, we brought Liverpool with Michael Owen. We brought Real Madrid with David Beckham. This was all part of the same thinking. Mm. Um, and so we, AmCham's idea was crunched through. And people said, yeah, we like it, but a few reservations. We want the tickets priced more expensively, etc., which was a bit counterproductive. But of course, once they jacked the ticket prices up, they had to get better acts to justify the higher prices so it, it sort of okay but in the end it worked out the same way i think the final budget ended up uh, 156 million but with 56 million of revenue and 100 million still as the agreed subsidy so how did we get from there then to you being the big, big bad wolf who, who had to be fined a month's salary well <laughs> that's a very good question even though all these years later i'm not entirely sure because People, I think, and I, Peter touched on this, because the economy bounced back so quickly, by the time the concerts were held in October and November, life had returned to normal. People said, well, why are we spending $100 million on a bunch of guilos uh, enjoying themselves with the latest pop bands? So 
sort of it, it began it became controversial and people were pointing fingers and the politicians by this time and as politicians do I'm afraid all ran away instantly it was like someone had let off a bad smell or something oh, or dear. thrown a hand grenade every, every single one and we had a committee with five ministers on it and two civil servants and the only two people who were prepared to put their hands up and explain what we were doing were the two civil servants the ministers just ran away so uh, running away wasn't good enough they decided they needed a real a, a real yeah. live sacrificial lamb and that was that was me I remember we went one afternoon to Ledgeco for question time and of the six oral questions that day four were about Harbour Fest and uh, I don't think that's ever happened before or since and uh, uh, Henry the financial secretary by then was Lexus Learn had resigned, Henry said, you, I want you to come with me. Uh, you're my lightning conductor. Lightning you, conductor? Lightning conductor. You sit behind me and I'll answer the questions and then everyone will look at you. And I thought, well, this is fair enough. This is, I've got a very thick skin. <laughs> I just sit there looking sombre and uh, penitent and whatever is necessary. And that was somehow didn't work. I think people were gearing up to make Henry the next chief executive as well. And they decided, no, no, someone's got to be punished. And some, so they drummed up these uh, discipline charges, which were very odd, um, I have to say. What uh, were they? What did they say? Well, actually, there were five of them, and each one had five legs. So altogether, 25 different things I was supposed to have done wrong. From organising concerts? Well, I didn't organise them, you see. It wasn't my job. My job was to sponsor the AmCham uh, activity. Right. So uh, my job was to give them the hundred million and make it. and make sure that they delivered the seventeen concerts. So give us an idea of these accusations. Well, the one that always made me laugh the most was the one that said that there was no clause in the contract, the final contract, requiring AmCham to review the ticket prices, even though this was a specific decision mm -hmm. of the committee, and it's totally true. There was no clause in the final contract requiring this review of the ticket prices because, in fact, we made AmCham review the ticket prices straight away while we were still drafting the contract. And they did, with the help of us and with the help of LCSD, and the revised ticket prices were actually attached to the contract. It was actually an annex to the contract. So having a clause in the contract requiring them to review the prices was completely redundant. They'd already done the review and the ticket prices were much higher, which is why the revenue went from 16 million as forecast to over 50 million. Oh um, but I was still found guilty, partly guilty of this charge and it was just obtuse, it was counter logical. Anyway, you fought this in court and it was very expensive, I'm sure, <laughs> and, and you wrote a book about it. <laughs> And it's yeah. all history now. Yes. So tell us about Invest HK, which you also set up. Right, well, this nearly got my new department off <laughs> into big trouble because we were a $100 million a year department. What and some, year was this? Uh, in 2000, July 2000. And we set the department up. There was a consultancy that said we needed a new department to focus on investment promotion. So we were running at about $100 million a year. And, of course, Harbour Festival came along. We had a billion dollars suddenly. Um, anyway, $100 million a year. Uh, and really, our problem then in Hong Kong, it's still a problem now to some extent, uh, was image, hmm. our PR. 
I remember I called all the staff together in the early weeks and I said to them, look, Singapore's got a good product, an outstanding PR. We've got an outstanding product and terrible PR. If we can just get the PR back to naught, out of negative territory, the quality of the product will speak for itself and we'll be fine. So, so you started Invest HK yes. and away it went. It did. And it, what was amazing was that we'd been so, or the government had been so heavily criticised back in 1999-2000 by the consultant who looked at what we were doing up to that point in time. And yet, three years later, I was lecturing in the Palais des Nations, the United Nations, on best practice in investment promotion. I mean, it's such a turnaround in a short time. But we had a, a great time with it. We, we, we absolutely went nuts. We sponsored the Fortune Global Forum in 2001. We sponsored Forbes Global CEO in 2002. We sponsored Business Week CEO in uh, 2003. In other words, the idea was get out into the market and make a noise. Mike Rouse recalling the year 2000 and the early days of Invest HK and the poisoned chalice that was Harbourfest. As Mr Justice Michael Hartman commented at the time, somewhat wryly, it doesn't take a genius to see it was political manoeuvring. As Mike Rouse observed, hotels emptied and tourists simply fled during SARS. Soir Pacific Chairman John Slosser describes trying to run an airline with only 5% of its normal passengers. Well, I think uh, anyone who was here would remember it as a very interesting and different time. Um, you know, in a time that, that snuck up very quickly on people. Uh, and I think what was interesting being part of that was just to see the reactions of how it all happened. Uh, speaking specifically about, um, you know, Cali Pacific, uh, it was very challenging for Cali Pacific. We, uh, you know, during, the, during that time, on an average day, would carry, you know, 50,000 passengers a day. During the lowest point of SARS, I think uh, on, on one day we were down below 5,000 passengers, so a a reduction of about 90% from what we would, would carry normally. So what measures did you put in to, to handle that? Well, you know, this is such an extreme case. It, it was very hard to, to deal with. But we, we did everything we could think of uh, to try to conserve cash and to keep the airline both, both running for people who needed it but also not running in a way that lost money. We put a bunch of airplanes on the ground. Um, both here in Hong Kong and also up in Xiamen, there was actually not enough room to park them, so we had to find places to park aircraft. Um, so we reduced flying. We asked all of our staff to take basically unpaid leave. Uh, I think it was a month's unpaid leave. It um, was a month. The, I a month unpaid leave, um, which was you know pretty shocking for people. But it, you know we worked it all out and explained everybody what was going on. It worked out fine. Um, and of course, if you travelled at the time, you realised that everybody on the plane was wearing masks. Um, which was interesting and, and uh, curious. Of course, out in the street, everybody was wearing masks as well. What actually kept the airline going at that time was really cargo, because although the, uh, you know, the seats were pretty empty, the bellies were full of cargo, it was still the Asian export boom going on, and, and that really kept the cash of the airline going well. I remember there was one flight to Taipei, I believe, where we actually carried one passenger. Um, but we did have something like 32 tons of cargo on the plane, and, and it kept it all going. The, the thing that people forget, although it, you know you remember the worst times, but actually it all came back fairly quickly after that. Um, you know, by by uh, the summer, by the late summer, things were already coming back. Um, we had a, a, a big offer come back to Hong Kong, get Hong Kong going. There was the Harbor Fest, uh, which attracted things, and and in fact, um, 
against the odds, uh, 2003 turned out to be a profitable year for Cathay Pacific. Um, so we, we had some very low points in the in the late spring and early summer, but it all came back fairly quickly by the autumn. Now, I'm thinking back, I remember they were about to, to change Zone E at the back of the aircraft for cargo, and, and everything turned around just a few days later. But the problem would have been, I think, for you guys, that you couldn't stabilize the cargo in the back of the passenger cabin. How was that going to work? Well, I, I think that was just a thought. I think it was never going to be practical. I mean, planes are either built to have cargo or, or they're not. Um, so that was not a problem. But what, what, you, what you raise is an interesting point, which is it, it was initially a big problem to shrink the airline and, and to make it you know, be what was out there in the marketplace. Uh, and that took a lot of doing. And just about the time where we'd got that finished, everything started to come back and we had to get the whole airline going again. So how um, challenging was it to get it back up to speed again? Well, you had to, you had to bring all the airplanes back. Some of them needed maintenance. You had to get the maintenance done. You had to bring the crew back in, get the rosters geared up. I mean, it, it, it's all doable, but, but it's not a trivial task. It took a little bit of time to do that. But as I say, by the end of the year, you know, we were, we were back to normal. Um, Hong Kong was humming again and... And um, SARS seemed just like a difficult memory. Mm. Uh, how close did you come, in all honesty, to, to going bust? Because it must have been very um, close to the edge. Um, you know, no, no, we, had, we had a plan. Uh, obviously, you know, mission A was to conserve cash and make sure we could go on for as long as possible. Um, and in the event, it, it, it was all fine because SARS didn't last as long as people thought it would. But at that time, people were talking about the contagion going on for a year or more. And, and that would have been, you know, life-threatening, you know, probably for, for the airline and probably for lots of different businesses around Hong Kong. You remember walking down the street, restaurants were closed, mm. shops were closed. Um, a lot of people actually vacated Hong Kong and, you know, schools closed. So a lot of families took their children overseas to countries like Thailand and other places to kind of wait out uh, uh, the bug. So the place really was, was pretty quiet at the time. It was, and at the time, nobody knew how long it would last, so it really was quite frightening. Well, it was quite frightening, and, and um, you recall in the, in the newspapers every day, they had a sort of count of how many people had lost their lives the previous day, and that all looked horrible. Um, you know, and and it, one could be forgiven for assuming the worst, but, but luckily, again, in the end, it was not the worst that, that came about. Things bounced back more quickly, I think, than anybody had foreseen. John Slosser. For the last words on surviving SARS, I caught up with Peter Borer, general manager of the Peninsula Hotel at the time. He describes how the flagship hotel weathered the storm. Well, unforeseen and I think unknown. So from one day to another, basically our hotel emptied out of guests. So if you have a hotel with 300 rooms and 900 staff, that is an enormous challenge and at the same time, for me personally, became the most stressful time in my life. How did you cope with that? Uh, well, I have the great privilege to work for a company which is headed by Sir Michael Kaduri, who, again, in these very difficult circumstances, showed an enormously kind and understanding uh, attitude and immediately called me and said, Peter, whatever happens, everybody will stay on the payroll. So that to me, of course, was of enormous relief. I could call in my people and I could tell them those news. And we buttoned down, we saved as much as we could. And at the same time, started to think about, so we've lost all our guests, what can we do to 
bring in some guests again. So what did you do? We came up with a local package, which we called the Three Wishes, and we offered an amazing amount of uh, programs such as heli rides and Rolls-Royce transfers and upgrades to suites for a very, very attractive price, hoping to attract Hong Kong residents who would normally not come and stay at the Pen because they already live in Hong Kong. Mm. And we had a very good response. And so over the course of about two to three weeks, we were able to go back to about 30% occupancy. And at least we had some people in the house and we had some guests in our restaurants. And it wasn't as depressing as on sort of day three of SARS when I stood in the lobby at lunchtime, which is usually, as you know, quite a bustling mm, place. Mm. And there was not a person in sight. That's quite spooky. Was that the lowest point for you, do you think? Yeah, I think it was, yes. I mean, were there moments when you thought, is this ever going to end? Yeah, there were moments like that because there was a lack of communication, I felt, uh, at times, and one really was in an unknown zone. Is this going to spread further? Is Hong Kong going to be completely locked down? Some airlines stopped flying to Hong Kong. It was the year of my 50th birthday. I wanted to go home to Switzerland and celebrate, and I had a hard time flying there because Swiss Air had stopped flying. And so here we are in this unknown zone. So, yeah, at times you went home in the evening and say, is this bad dream finally going to end or what's the what's the result going to be? Mm, and I imagine you had a lot of frightened staff who, who didn't know what was going on and looked to you for guidance. We had staff whose families were affected and who had been hospitalised. Obviously, these staff were immediately sent themselves into quarantine because we didn't want to have further exposure. But you didn't know when they came to the hotel for 15 minutes to report that their mother was in hospital, whether there had already been a contamination because one didn't know how this whole thing was transferred from one person to the next. So it was a very stressful time. And you personally, how did your life change every day? Did you were you extra well, I was vigilant? Running around in a mask and in gloves and felt like a surgeon, <laughs> <laughs> and, which is not the usual attire for a hotelier. Uh, but personally, I think it's important that if you are sort of trying to run an organization, that you at least on the outside remain very positive and keep smiling and keep your staff feeling that, you know, this is going to end and that we're coming out at the other end positively. Right. Yeah. And if it happened again, how do you think Hong Kong would handle it differently? Well, I think in today's world, one would even be have to be much better in terms of communication, because in today's world, digital is even faster than it was in 2003. So a daily, you know, communique from government, what is being done, how the recovery is going, how many people are sick, how many people have left hospital, and so on, would be essential. And you think that didn't happen at the time? That was quite lacking. Peter Borer, Chief Operating Officer of the Peninsula Hotels. I'm Anna Fenton. Join me again next week for 20 Years On.